Hello, Emma. Hey, Kate. Happy Sunday, everyone. I hope you're not depressed today. <laughs> uh, the winter blues have been hitting Emma and I. It's been a little, it's been a struggle for us. Yeah, it's pretty just, there's no sunlight, and then when I go outside, I'm freezing, and like, what's the point of this? What's the point of the whole, why am I 22? Why, is there a reason I have to be alive right now? like, fast forward, I get the point. Yeah, like, I get this whole year, I get the whole age, can I just be, like, 30 at a farm? Like, what's the fucking deal? The fact that, like, March is kind of almost here, and I'm like, I feel like it was just March, like, yesterday. Yeah, it's almost one happy birthday to coronavirus <laughs> i mean i think the birthday's already passed since the first case probably but yeah it's pretty fucking sad out here <laughs> the grocery trips have not been hitting i really have not experimented to go to like health stores recently because i'm like same fucking shit there's no new product there's no new fruit i can buy we don't got any new food we're really starting this on like a positive note <laughs> yeah i hope you guys are having a good um you know monday morning yeah i woke up this morning from like the citizens app and it's like expect 18 inches of snow by tuesday and i was like love that for me yeah but the one thing that has been keeping us somewhat happy uh, and going is our pancakes yeah um as you guys probably as we mentioned kate and i have you know been consuming new foods aka eggs, eggs. and the pancakes finally work work yeah yeah um sorry for the just egg slander it's nothing personal it's just you know a meme guys it's a meme it's a uh, yeah it's, it's a meme, meme. <laughs> uh it's funny when the comments pop off but i also am like chill guys this ain't a news platform you can most, eat just egg if you yeah. want to most time we're just making fun of ourselves <laughs> yeah like a lot of the memes are attacking the way that i live so like Take a take a breath. If you get it, you get it. If you, you don't, don't, you, you don't. don't. <laughs> uh, we need to dedicate a meme to a certain yeah. figure. We're not going to mention it on the phone. No. Um, yeah, back to the pancakes. Have been hitting. You know, a little bit of almond flour. Shout out Bob's Red Mill. Some eggs. You get the protein. Oh, my protein powder is actually coming in the mail today. Wow. Um, um, what have been your go-to toppings? You posted a beautiful little... Yeah. I feel like I'm a food blogger now. <laughs> food bloggers are honestly fake as fuck. Like, y'all don't actually... I have conspiracy. Me they too. all make the same thing. It's like... A y'all ma- just be copying each other's recipe and just, like, changing one word. Banana, oats, nut butter. Blend it all together and put it in the oven. Woo. We pack... Like, I'm so dumb. Like, this is a controversial <laughs> opinion probably, but... Can we, like, stop with, like, the microwave mug stuff? Like, come on. Yeah. Emma and I were trying to do that, I think, the past few weeks. Disappointed every fucking time. I was like, why am I... I'm like, why am I just eating, like microwaved up like protein powder and milk like i'm like this is depressing <laughs> yeah we're off the mug cake i'm off the rice cake thing yeah. too i you know i want to eat my meals i don't want some bullshit um but back to the pancakes uh you know <laughs> yeah go to go to we've like have already like diverted this conversation like 10 different ways um yeah go to toppings as of late uh today i did a little bit of a banana with granola butter cacao nibs um my only nut butter i've really been consuming is granola butter lately but coconut yogurt has been hitting for us always how about you um i've been keeping it pretty simple today i didn't have pancakes today i had toast but my go-to has just kind of been yeah a little bit of cocoa june on top some maple syrup blueberries and cacao nibs that's been really really good um so yeah that's been a fun my fun little treat. What else you can do in these dire times <laughs> right? besides worry about pancake toppings? Mm-hmm. It's a valid, a valid hobby, a valid concern to have. But yeah, at this point in 
the, the year, um, my life, I'm kind of like, oh God, some, give me something new to do. Give me like a family to cook for or something. <laughs> I don't know. Cook for. Yeah, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I feel that. Mm, yeah, but you know, nonetheless, um, glad to have you guys here. Uh, Emma and I are going to get over our shit and <laughs> get into our little <laughs> happy vibes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys listened to episode 12, it was on food and climate change, a very long conversation. So this podcast is going to be more about these government policies and systemic interventions that could make food be a driving solution to the climate crisis. Because I think last episode was just talking about the limits of individual action. Yeah, I feel like it was, the last episode was more like focusing more on like a micro individual level. This is kind of more like macro and definitely like bigger picture and bigger thinking and some of this i think in this particular episode is probably going to be difficult for any of us to do yeah unless you are you know chief policy officer inside of the fda like i don't think you're going to be able to like restructure the entire economy overnight um but this is just more of an educational episode versus like a way that you can take action because i think it's more important for people to know like when you are doing these individual boycotts, you have to know the reason why you're doing it. And so if you don't really know the systems that are undergirding our food policies, then you're kind of taking action blindly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about a lot of different inequalities produced by the modern food system in the United States, talking a little bit about like global trends in food policy, but mostly keeping it honed into the U.S. and the ways that we're fucking up the planet. And just kind of like how the food system as it is, can be restructured and how we can address climate change through changing up the food system. Um, so yeah, there's some like exciting stuff to like, I think just to educate and be aware about, um, cause this is like stuff that isn't really mentioned much. Like I feel like in media. Yeah. Or like little vegan circles yeah. or all that stuff. Um, to introduce the podcast, I think, I mean, I've written about this on my Instagram recently, but, um, kind of getting beyond the individual boycott, uh, Consumers can't really effectively boycott certain products, the entire scale of factory farming by like one consumer purchase. When you think about income inequality, how much money Jeff Bezos has versus one person that lives in New York, their purchasing power is a lot more like intense compared to us. So it's like your individual actions are not going to restructure these economic systems overnight. Like you cannot make the food system more equal with your dollar. Uh, Some people could argue you can, but there's too much inequality in our food system. And eating for the climate, like a plant-based diet or any sort of climate-friendly diet, though, is an effective lifestyle interaction. It's pretty much reserved for a few people. So we're going to get into some of these topics later about like food apartheid. Um, Some of you might have heard the term food desert, so I'm going to talk about the difference between the two. But this gets into a political topic, which I think people throw around a lot. It has a lot of confusing definitions, and it's called neoliberalism, something that I've studied a lot at NYU, and there's a very, there's a lot of strains of it, schools of thought in different economics departments in different colleges. There's like European neoliberalism in the University of Chicago, Hayek, all these people. But in relation to food and how it affects this conversation, the way that I want people to think about it when they're listening to it is that it's... Neoliberalism is going to be reducing your own political actions to consumer decisions versus being citizens. An example of that, your interaction with the food system is what you buy. You're not talking to your representatives. You're not really in conge- like dealing with the local food community that you occupy. So it's very, very limited in your own action, and it reduces your interaction between you and the government. Um, We try to boycott the production of plastic straws, and so 
it's we look to make these changes with our dollar instead of looking at the systems in play. So it's very much a distraction from like the underlying systems that create this inequality where some people can buy metal straws and some people can't. So it ignores the massive income inequality and it only allows some people to have these food choices. Who can boycott? Who can't boycott? Um, that's kind of the introduction because I think the food conversation gets very one-dimensional when it's all about here's what to buy, here's not what to buy, uh, and we're not cognizant of, yeah, like all of the inequalities produced by the food system. So the first kind of barrier to having these food choices and living an eco-friendly lifestyle is going to be the term food apartheid. So the more common term, or I guess the more, I don't know, popular term, it's kind of gotten a shift, is called food desert. Mm -hmm. So the USDA defines a food desert as a low-income census tract where a substantial number of a share of residents has low access to supermarket or a large grocery store. I think this is pretty easy, easy to visualize. Um, a lot of people that do not have access to go to Whole Foods based on like where grocery stores are located, they don't have a co-op, you don't have a farmer's market in your area, so you'd have to drive farther, you'd have to mm -hmm. take a longer walk, get on transportation. And it makes sense also, like, just like from a capitalist society, like grocery stores, they're going to build where people are going to spend the money. And so like, that's why and more like richer neighborhoods you're gonna see like you know three whole foods or like three really nice grocery stores all within like a mile radius whereas like in areas where it's like more lower income there might be like two grocery stores and they might be like you know three miles apart from each other yeah and then when we're thinking about you know everyone boycott factory farming everyone stop eating meat that person would have to like get on a train and go lug a bunch of groceries yeah. so that's why food access is really critical to this conversation you're thinking about how much of a, a pain in the ass it is to get to a grocery store mm -hmm. for someone. And that's a structural problem. It's not the individual that's too lazy to go do that. I mean, yeah. that's a trope thrown on low-income people all the time, that you're lazy and you, you don't have the, like, the right intention or the morality to be healthy. It's like, no, there are so many barriers in place. It's not accessible to people to do. Mm -hmm. um, some of the issues with the term food desert, though, there's a food activist, which we'll link to. Um, I watched a few videos from him, and he's really really good speaker and like really clear on I think the systemic parts of it his name is Malik Yakani. uh he talks about why food desert is a little bit of an issue politically basically because a food desert implies it's a barren landscape so it kind of implies like no one is living there there's no reason to have good food there you're in the middle of nowhere and the solution assumes that the answer would just to be plop in a bunch of more grocery stores but the food deserts doesn't describe their communities as like people that actually live there, that have lives, that want to purchase good food. It just implies that these are impoverished places. These people aren't like deserving of equal food. And it's kind of imposed upon the community that you live in a desert. For example, you wouldn't say that someone is an at-risk person when you're thinking about like that, that's used a lot in conversations around education at early childhood level um which i'm familiar about with my brother it's like oh this kid's at risk of being at below reading level i would never be like hi i'm an at-risk student you know it's a really kind of negative connotation to put onto people really disempowering um and it doesn't speak the main issue i think with food desert is it doesn't speak to the intentionality to communities that are deprived of food so it makes it seem like it's at random which communities are food deserts which are not but clearly it's due to public policy and active choices made by government officials it's not just at random that certain communities have access to fresh food and don't it has been decades of impoverishment tied to decades of gentrification, colonization, economic exploitation, and policy choices. So I think we often think of government sometimes as like not doing anything, but I think 
a lot of the times when there's no regulation or no food in these areas, those are active choices. Those are kind of acting passively from government officials. Like ignoring people is a very active choice to do. And so that has led to the disparities in our food system. Uh, It doesn't happen in a vacuum alone. So another one of the food activists, or a few of the food activists uh, that speak more about food apartheid, um, we'll link them as well in the infographics and everything. One is Dara Cooper, and she describes food apartheid as a systemic destruction of Black self-determination to control our food. This encompasses land, resource theft, discrimination, and there's a hypersaturation of destructive foods and predatory marketing. When you're thinking about fast foods, you're thinking about this from a health perspective. And there's a blatantly discriminatory corporate-controlled food system. And it results in some communities experiencing a higher risk for health complications. So this is the tie between climate change and public health. And you can't really tackle our food system without looking at both of those factors. A really cool like f- activist that I really look up to a lot, her name is Leah Penniman. She runs a farm called Soul Fire Farm. She does a lot of apprentice programs to help get black farmers back into um, farming and really you know, teaching and retraining the narrative that like black people don't farm uh, because she yeah, has like puts people under her wing kind of like has a, a certain month long program. Uh, I think it's in upstate New York. But um, she has a book called Farming While Black, which talks a lot about this. And so she speaks about that, you know, this began with genocidal land theft from indigenous people. When you think about the foundation of America, um, a lot of the agricultural labor was forced. We think about slavery expanding to the way that we treat migrant workers now. And farm management is pretty much only managed at the highest level by white people. Um, And farm labor is going to be predominantly exploited by brown and black communities as well. So this this relates to the labor that is going into your food, which I don't think a lot of vegan communities talk about. Um, But basically, like food apartheid speaks to these structuralized, racialized inequalities in our food system. But food desert makes it seem like it's pretty random in which communities experience inequity. Um, And some of the ways that I think, you know, food... The food movement can be um, really eye-opening to people's thinking about food justice and restoring kind of autonomy to the people that produce food. For example, um, there's a lot of movement around indigenous food sovereignty, uh, making it, uh, making I think white people, especially I'll just say it blatantly, <laughs> more aware of the way that like colonialism and capitalism have exploited nature. Um, indigenous food systems are very much in conjunction with nature and how mm-hmm. the earth first was. The way that they tend to the land, uh, rely on a diversity of crop species. It's a lot different than what the current modern food system with industrial agriculture is like. So that would be another way I think people that I want that are more activist in their veganism or plant-based living or low impact living this is another way to get involved the food justice movement it views healthy food as a human right not so much you know a, a consumer action but you're fighting for land rights farm labor work class issues and a redistribution of equality um But I think food as well, we often think about it through the consumption side. We only think about what we buy versus thinking about land, production, distribution. Um, And one other fact before we get into other, you know, areas of this is that when we think about who operates our food system, only about... 1% of our farmers are black farmers. And you think about the history of this country and who, you know, founded this country and the white people that came in and took over farming. 
Um, yeah, there's just huge disparities. And I think, yeah, like Leah Penniman's book talks a lot more about this. So I won't get more into that. And then I think another important thing to recognize is like the immigrant and farmer labor. Um, I think we all know that what they experience is like terrible, but no one really addresses it. And I think it's hard to, because again, there is kind of this curtain with the food system and our only interactions when we're at the grocery store and we all live in very urban areas where we aren't seeing people work on the farms. And so I think what's really important to know and like remember is that farm workers are most likely to not even really be able to afford to feed their own families as they harvest and pick your organic tomatoes and avocados. So, you know, that $6 pint of blueberries, the farmer who was picking those most likely cannot afford to eat those. And so farm working, farm workers and food workers, so this includes like wine cooks, you know, your waiters, it is the largest sector of workers in the U.S., making up about 20 million. A majority of these people are people of color and immigrants, and they um, experience, they're the ones who make up most of like the people like in the poverty line and experience food insecurity. Um, and yeah, so three quarters of those below the poverty line, 50 million of people who are food insecure are again going to be people of color, Native Americans, Latinos, etc. And so how ethical is your food? I think this is an important conversation, I think, for like people in like the vegan and plant-based community to focus on because there's so much like talk and like, oh, like, you know, it's not ethical to eat meat because of like how like, you know, the animals are raised and treated. But also it's like just because you're eating strawberries does not mean that like the way that they were like grown and like harvested is like perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, and this kind of ties more to like the labor aspect of it. So farm and food workers are subjected to harsh working conditions, long hours, sexual harassment, lack of health care and exposure to toxic chemicals. Um, farm workers have a sevenfold higher mortality rate than other workers. And this is largely due to like the pesticide exposure, which poisons roughly 10,000 to 20,000 farm workers each year. And a lot of these like pesticides and herbicides that are used in America and in industrial agriculture are like generally banned in a lot of other countries because of like the terrible like health um implications that they can cause down the road and 60 percent um they have a 60 percent higher risk of occupational injury and illness than non-food workers and this is just in the u.s alone i think it's also to recognize how farm workers are treated across the border because we have such a high reliance on our receiving produce from mexico and central america um, according to the Times, about 50% of our veggies and 40% of our fruit come from Mexico. And an average farm worker in Mexico and Central America make maybe roughly about $8 to $12 a day. And in Mexico, they employ, that's in air quotes, of 300,000 children, which are subjected to slavery and violence. And another, I think, important aspect is like, how like drug cartels are involved in the agriculture industry in Mexico. Um, If you have like heard about like the whole like blood avocado thing, um, basically drug cartels will murder workers on avocado farms and then sell their blood avocados in the US. And this is largely because avocados are a major source of income in Mexico. So drug cartels obviously are taking advantage and trying to profit off of such a commodity. And again, the exposure just to herbicides and pesticides can damage the brain, cause cancer and disrupt hormones. And so immigrants and like other just like people who are working on like the farms, they're 
truly like risking their lives to bring your food, bring you food, and they really receive no benefit from it. Yeah, and I think it's a conversation that I feel like people have a lot of conversations about animal rights, Mm -hmm. and I think in order to be a good food advocate, you also need to think about human rights and tie that into your criticism of the food system. Like, we're all guilty of it. Like, I never think of, like, how people are, like, treated. Treated, totally. Um, And also, so farm workers receive incredibly unfair wages. Um, Seven out of the ten lowest-paying jobs are in the food industry, equating to maybe about $20,000 a year. And they have largely been left out from protections afforded to other workers in the economy. So why is this? So in 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act was enacted, and this was basically created to guarantee most workers minimum wage and provide overtime pay. But until 1966, farm workers were excluded from this. Um, But now it applies a minimum wage and record-keeping provisions to most workers and employers in the in this area and but overtime provisions are still not applicable to farm workers and one thing to note again is that many agricultural workers are employed on small small farms and farms that have fewer than seven workers in a calendar quarter are generally not protected by the minimum wage provisions um farmworkersjustice.org they have a really good interactive map where you can basically see the farm workers rights by state which we can link so you can see in your state, what protections of the farm workers receive. And this, I think, is tying to interrupt, is mm-hmm. where you can take action beyond, you know, voting with your dollar. Yeah. Because some of us can't afford to buy all organic produce, no. myself included. Yeah. But what something you could do is organize around policies that would benefit your workers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a way people can restructure their analysis of food, uh, not only thinking about what you consume, but how you fight for the people in the food industry, retail workers, are you looking to pass a minimum wage in your state? Um, their fight for 15 is very um, long, progressive battle for getting a $15 federal minimum wage, and it's kind of being considered by the Biden administration, so that would be another huge way that would trickle down to affect how our food system works. Yeah, and so I think one thing that all of us should try to do more of is just focus on where your food is coming from. And again, like not everyone is going to be in a position to be able to purchase from a local farmer who like maybe potentially grows and harvests the food on their own. So I think just like being appreciative that like, wow, I am so lucky that I'm able to go out and like eat these strawberries. Cause like, I know like so many people can just like showing like appreciation for your food and like the hard work that was put in to bring that food to you. Um, one thing also is that just, to support fair trade products. If you see the fair trade certification like label on a food item, um, definitely try and support and purchase these goods because oftentimes like farmers in poor countries are often exploited. And again, just like the treatment, even just in America um, of farm workers. And so the fair trade, the certified fair trade logo means that the product was sustainably sourced and is made in a way that does not pollute land or water. And it also, typically guarantees that farmers and workers were receiving fair prices. Um, so that is just like one way that you can, you know, make some change with when you are going out and purchasing products. Yeah, I think the most effective way that you as a consumer can take action is thinking about what you already buy, mm-hmm. what you have the financial ability to buy better. Mm-hmm. You know, I buy a lot of chocolate bars. And so mm-hmm. that's one thing, like they're probably all relatively same price. I could buy the one that's fair trade, organic. Um, and then thinking about the times that now that Emma and I aren't vegan, like thinking about when I am buying eggs and buying fish, that that is locally sourced because that has a huge impact on the environment. 
So this gets into the more structural ways of how to rethink the food system. Your mind might be like boggling at this point. Well, like, what the fuck can I do? I've been told for decades that I just need to like go vegan and like eat potatoes all day, which is true. Like a lot of us are going to be limited, but also a lot of us can't make food choices, but you might be able to go on strike and fight for 15 with your local workers. So our food system is a solution for climate change. It's the biggest contributor to climate change due to the way that we treat our current agricultural system, the current industrial practices, the reliance on fossil fuels in our economy. For example, 23% of our GHG emissions comes directly from agriculture, forestry, and other types of land use. Monoculture, which we'll get into more when we talk about agriculture in this episode, is a reliance on growing one type of crop. You're probably familiar with like, I don't know, I feel like I've seen shit about like how many soy, like big soy and corn and wheat, which are the, the three that are yeah. like the most subsidized. And I was going to say, I feel like I, growing up in Nebraska, I have, that's like wherever you're driving, it's typically always yeah. like just like corn and Boring soy. as fuck. <laughs> yeah, boring as fuck. But there, I mean, there is a reason for it. And I think also to note that like those like cornfields and soy bean like fields as well, a lot of that being grown is not even going towards like feeding us as like a society. Yeah. It's going towards creating like high fructose corn syrup or going to even just create food for like or animals to eat like yeah, industrial animal, um, animal yeah and another thing with our food system is there's a heavy reliance on herbicides and pesticides um mostly because of the ways that we graze animals and the way that we process food because there is such like a detachment from us all shopping in a very localized manner mm-hmm. Um, And so these are, you know, government policies, once again, active choices that the government has prioritized to make our food system work the way it is, to work for the very few, the very few, like, big, you know, Monsanto and all the evil big farms. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to get into more of, like, the solutions that I think are really good to consider. Not Once again, not all of us are going to be able to go out and enact these policies. Like, none of us, I bet, listening to this damn podcast, we're, like, little girlies. (laughs) But these are just really, like, interesting conversations conversational pieces and ways to think beyond yourself yeah and so I think one thing that I really never even considered or thought about was the importance of soil um Mark Hyman who Kate and I have mentioned a lot our god yes our god um he has a book called food fix um that if you want to read you can and he has a really good podcast called uh, the doctor's pharmacy he talks a lot about um regenerative agriculture which we'll get into but also the importance of soil um because again like this is like the root of like kind of the food system and like how we can kind of address climate change if we look at how we're treating the soil. So the importance of soil, um, it can hold hundreds of thousands of gallons of water per acre, protecting from droughts and floods. It is also the biggest carbon sink on the planet and soil has the ability to sequester more carbon and do more reverse climate change than all rainforests in the world. And I think this is like it kind of like blew my mind so like yeah. soil just seems like a very like simple basic thing but like it holds so much power and i think too along that lines like oftentimes in climate change the conversations led by white men are like we need to geo engineer this and we need to come up with new technology it's like no we need to get back to the way that indigenous communities were treating the land before white people came in and fucked it all up exactly so yeah it's like the easy solutions are often ones that will like actually reverse climate change versus like buying a new technology yeah But unfortunately, we have been experiencing great soil degradation due to industrial practices such as overgrazing. So allowing like on industrial um, like farms where there's like millions of like cows and pigs on feedlots, um, like overgrazing. Monocrop agriculture, which again, is basically only growing one crop on your field and not rotating them, which can damage the soil. 
again, bad crop rotation and deforestation. Um, and so regenerative agriculture is basically the complete opposite of industrial farming. And it is a system of farming principles and practices along with holistic land management that is known to and has the ability to increase biodiversity, enrich the soil, improve watersheds, and capture carbon in the soil. And so how? And this is through no-till systems, crop rotation, and then the integration of livestock, and which we'll get into in a second. And again, this is more profitable, produces higher yields of crops, conserves water, and increases biodiversity in the soil. And so basically you're regenerating and bringing the soil back to life because so much of the soil is depleted and is basically dead and it's just dirt and dirt is dead and soil is alive. And so it captures the carbon in the soil and above ground biomass, thus reversing the current trends of atmospheric accumulation. Um, so we mentioned how livestock rotation is really, really important for regenerative agriculture. And I think this is like one thing people don't really realize that it's like, we kind of like livestock is actually an essential part of maybe addressing climate change if we are do end up going down this route. Yeah. Um, and like, I know with like a lot of people like vegan, vegans and like people in that community, it's always like putting blame on like you know, the cows and, like, you know, fucking, like, cow farts and everything releasing, yeah. like, nothing, but um, realizing that, like, they hold so much power. And, and in our history, too, like, mm-hmm. when you think about our, you know, our ancestors, <laughs> farmers and hunters and gatherers, like, they all had cows and the planet wasn't fucked. Yeah. So it's a lot of, you know, industrial economy and capitalism that has made it to the point where the way that we exploit cows in factory farming. Yeah. So there's a difference between, like, this new way of regenerative agriculture and then factory farming that you see in these, like, vegan propaganda films, I guess. So it's really, it's not the cow, but the how. And so it's, again, impractical for everyone to adopt a vegan diet based on the limitations of where people live, affordability, and just, like, how this food system is set up. And it is recommended to eat a mostly plant-based diet and to make meat your side dish if you are consuming meat. And again, like we said, livestock is necessary in addressing climate change, and you cannot have regenerative agriculture without the without livestock and so we're not telling you that like being vegan is pointless but just to realize that we kind of need to like view it as like from a different lens and to those who do eat excessive meat like consider what your where your meat is coming from and as opposed to just like you know selecting the first thing you see in the grocery store and making it more of like your side dish yeah um so livestock is responsible for 14.5 percent of human greenhouse emissions And there is a difference between the CAFOs, which are concentrated animal feeding operations and like the grass-fed holistic management. Um, So the concentrated animal feeding operations, this is like probably what you see in a lot of like food documentaries or like documentaries on climate change. Um, They're industrialized, industrial-sized livestock operations and they can house millions of animals, dairy cows, hogs, and chickens. They're fed extremely cheap grains and soy and their manure and urine often leak into waterway, waterways and creates air pollution. And the overgrazing leads to soil degradation. So this is like the type of like livestock raising that is extremely detrimental and causes incredible, um, terrible negative um, impacts on our climate. But grass-fed holistic management and regenerative agriculture, basically like this is like known as like adaptive multi-paddock Grazing is another term for it. And it's where livestock is rotated around multiple paddocks. So like different parts of like a farm to avoid overgrazing and stimulate plant growth, which will then sequester the carbon, 
Also, the, the, the manure, the urine, and saliva from these, like, cows, hogs, and chickens will fertilize soil and build it the fastest um, to regenerate and make the soil come back to life. And again, there's no regenerative agriculture without animals as part of the ecological cycle. And a study comparing feedlot to grass-fed adaptive multi-paddock raised cattle, that is that is a sentence, <laughs> um, found that grass-fed operations, including all outside inputs and methane, reduced net carbon by 170% and feedlot raised cattle increased net carbon emissions. And so I think this is like a really exciting thing to consider and I do hope it becomes more mainstream and it kind of has but there are certainly um limitations to it because it requires an entire shift in how we think about farming especially Mm -hmm. with big ag and big food and this isn't going to be like an overnight thing if a farmer were to start switching over to regenerative agriculture it would take up to four years to regenerate the land and bring it back to life but there is hope, um, like General Mills, Nestle, and Danon, they have committed to shift their supply chain to regenerative agriculture because they realize that it is actually more profitable and increases higher yields. And it also helps with like, addressing climate change. Mm-hmm. And I think with, like Emma was saying, with this shift about farming, there are so many barriers in the way to this happening, right? Like, some people act like this all happens in a vacuum once again like if every farmer knew this they would all do it Mm -hmm. but it's like the economy we have so many monopolies in our economy right now that your small farmer can't take a risk and adopt this in four years because they will lose profits by not having a farm for those four years and also like a lot of these farmers are like tied into like contracts with like these big ag companies like i know monsanto controls pretty much what seeds a farmer can grow and like to really break away from that can be like very scary and damaging for farmers. Mm -hmm. And so like realizing that like, yeah, it's going to take a whole like shift and like a lot of like intervention from different systems to address this and actually make it happen. Yeah. And another thing with food politics is that we used to have, a. I mean, in growing up now, Emma and I are both Gen Z, there's really no political awareness of what a union is. Like, I have a lot of relatives that were in farmers' unions and labor unions. There's been such a decimation from the right wing of union works. And so when you are an individual farmer, why would you go fight the big big guy when you know you're going to get fucked by it? You know, that is why there's an issue when we don't have unions, because farmers can't band together against the big guy, which I think is an easy metaphor for people to understand. But that's another another governmental policy that having farmer unions and stronger regulations around that would really help these small farmers. Another thing about the food system is we would need to decarbonize the food system. So fossil fuels are often required to manufacture the plastic that wraps our food and the fuel that gets these vehicles to transport the food to you. So that's another area where food can be a driving force um, for the crazy amount of carbon emissions we have now. It's also, once again, another area where there's hope. If we were to switch over to electric vehicles and think more about food miles, that would be another solution to intervene with. So this gets into, I think, the final section of the Mm -hmm. podcast. Emma and I have a ton of solutions here that once again you little listener are probably not going to be able to do but these are some structural changes that i would be really excited if our country gave a shit about climate change and wanted to use the food system for good but basically like the food system this burden for changing the food system needs to be on high consumer countries and high consumer countries are the united states we have the most like rampant global emissions it's not going to be on small countries that aren't doing much to affect net emissions globally Um, populations that are in the developing world they are going to be already vulnerable and food insecure they're most likely to be the seriously most seriously affected by things like droughts floods and the most like 
drastic things from climate change. So we really can't ask these countries to do much. It has to be countries like the United States. Like, we caused the problem, let's fix it. One thing I don't really know if Joe Biden has the appetite, I'll put my little pol- political prediction hat on, um, since we're in a global pandemic and there's so many other things happening, I don't really think there would be appetite politically for a national food policy. But that would be really interesting because the way that I think about food policy, like we talked about food apartheid and we also talked about farming, you need to give people the opportunity to have food choices. So you would need to restructure the entire food system, the way we farm, the economic systems that make it so difficult for small farmers to succeed. But at the same time, you do need to give autonomy to grassroots communities to create their own food systems based on their needs. So when you think about the way that black communities have like raised food and indigenous communities have raised food, you need to give those communities back the autonomy that white people have taken away from them. So it can't be some federal policy that we all have to go eat vegan, we all have to go eat rice for every meal. It needs to be localized. So that's kind of a difficult part of the politics of it where you need to have some sort of federal structure that allows for people to have you know, autonomy over what they eat. The first thing is that I think an overall like opportunistic thing. I don't want to leave you guys feeling like there's no solution, but if we were to think about our food system in a different way, it would address climate change. It would address public health disparities, structural racism produced by the food system and economic inequality. If we took care of the way that we tended to food, the first response is that it would be a public health response. So this would be subsidizing fresh foods and vegetables, addressing the inequalities produced by food apartheid, One food system that deals with food insecure communities is the SNAP system. A lot of times you can't use SNAP benefits on fresh produce. It's very limited towards what you can afford. So when people are shaming low-income communities for only buying this, that's a government policy. So tailoring it more towards communities that experience food apartheid versus a generalized response because getting food from Manhattan, New York is going to be a lot different than the Bronx based on the income levels. And so the SNAP benefit program would have to address that. Um, The next area that I was kind of speaking on is we need to create localized food systems. So communities have a voice in their needs, things like community gardens, community fridges. There's actually been a lot that have popped up in New York due to the Mm -hmm. pandemic, um, which is a really great response. Co-ops, farmers markets, this access to fresh foods would need to happen so communities can figure out like who's the hurt, who's hurting the most and have the money to do that. The next thing that it's more of an international response to climate ch- or to food and climate change is creating a declaration of human rights that addresses food justice. So this would be something like a bill of rights, basically, that would be addressing the inequalities produced by our food system, who's struggling the most, how we're going to help. It would be supporting black and people of color that are farmers, creating new job opportunities for young farmers like apprenticeship programs. And another sort of human rights side to this would be passing a $15 minimum wage for farmers and laborers, ensuring safe human conditions. So this would be updating laws that have really become ineffective with how our current system is politically. The next one is going to be environmental. This would start at the federal level and trickle down. So decarbonizing the food system, everything from the trucks to the energy used in the farms. Biden's climate plan, I was like briefing it over a little bit. It's still very rough, um, but it doesn't really talk about food in this sort of very holistic, all-encompassing way. But another like easy way to think about this is shifting the burden once again onto the government to do the right thing. So with composting, if every household got a compost bin, Wow, I'm sure as hell more people would fucking do it, giving everyone a reusable bag. Um, With the pandemic, there was like 
uh, I don't remember who it was, but someone, maybe it was Bernie, they were going to give every person a mask. Like, you can't get mad at people if we do not give them masks to go out and buy one. Um, countries like France, we talked about in the last episode, have a tax on food scraps if you don't compost them. So that would be another way for the government to intervene. And economic fairness, uh, this is speaking to farmers' rights and kind of restructuring the economy from the federal level. So restructuring how farm subsidies work, it typically goes to these big three, like corn, wheat, and soy, as we talked about. So it kind of boxes out small farmers of the economy. Monopolies like Monsanto control, I think, what I read in Mark Hyman's book, it was 70% of agrochemicals, 90% of the global grain trade is controlled by just four multinational companies. So there's really no autonomy for all of us to, you know, go support our local farmer when our local farmer can't keep up. Um, it would be making it easier for these smaller farmers to adopt regenerative agriculture, like Emma said, and then using soil as a solution. So a lot of our agricultural land is less productive than it has been in the past. And we would need to incentivize and meaning like giving aid to farmers to plant their crops in a way that is in conjunction with nature. It would, car it would hold carbon and the nutrients in the soil, and it would also increase the yields and the growth of plants. So it would be benefiting the farmer. I think a lot of time these economic arguments get lost because it's like, oh, we can't do climate change. It's too expensive. We can't do regenerative agriculture. It's too expensive. No, it would help the farmers out. There's just a lot of blockages in like how we think about the economy. Um, overall, I think the ways that we need to shift the food system are going to be at a governmental level. The government needs to make vegan food more affordable. The government needs to make it easier for farmers versus forcing us all to navigate the marketplace. Yeah. The fucking free market is fake. Yeah. Um, ad addressing the structural inequalities and the history of racism and the legacy of colonialism in our food system uh, would take a lot, but there is a lot of activist pressure and like a lot of great like black and indigenous farmers and communities doing this work. So supporting them when you can, finding out if you, know, if you as an individual have purchasing power to donate to a mutual aid fridge or something like that could be an effective way yeah yeah i think just like again to like close it all up like realizing that i think that like the biggest point that kate and i want to get across is that it's like more than simply like back to beating and there's so much like that goes into like the food system and like why we can't get mad at like how people eat and yeah so i think just like being more aware and again like individual action yes to an extent and like if you have the money to do so or if you have the time to be able to go out of your way to make some sort of change or like you know talk to your representatives like it's just like little things and I think just like being aware is like the biggest thing because like knowledge is power yeah for sure and you can affect your small circle like mm -hmm. once again Emma and I didn't grow up from the womb like understanding this type of information so the the burden of learning has to be on you to like give a shit I think it's a miracle that you and I are from the midwest like I like yeah. have been surrounded by like industrial farming a lot like yeah. the fact that we are where we are is like kind yeah. of insane yeah I think the fact that like both of us little vegans ended up in New York City and now we like care so much about this and I think I also struggle this is like a rant to have at the end that a lot of wellness people do not give a shit about this it's all very much about me and my my spirulina like fuck the rest there's plenty of people that don't have access to clean water. I think you can do both. Like Emma and I, you know, choose to buy certain products that are good for health. But if you're not looking at the food system from a public health crisis and the income inequality and all of that shit, that is what I think Emma and I want to start this podcast about because 
wellness is very much like toxic in the sense that it just perpetuates this like elitism in it Mm -hmm. and it's not any real conversations about barriers that like don't allow for people to go out and buy adaptogens yeah and it's like treated as like this like quirky trendy thing and like it yeah i just struggle because there's a lot of quote influential people that really lacked this awareness and they don't give a fuck they don't give a fuck to learn about it they have a platform like emma and i you know we have certain amount of platform but like there are people with hundreds of thousands of followers that post their stupid vegan shit and they move on with their day and they absolve their responsibility like i get frustrated with all these lifestyle influencers telling me to get a fucking metal straw meanwhile they haven't talked about where they live in the land they inhabit and all that and emma and i are no means perfect but it really bothers me that there's just this lack of political will in the wellness space, in the lifestyle space, in the vegan space. Um, Yeah, that's my kind of rant about this. But in the show notes, we're going to have a few books. So we mentioned Food Fix by Mark Hyman. Farming While Black by Leah Peniman is a great resource, especially anyone who lives in New York. I think there's some opportunities to go work for her. It's upstate, so I don't really know how close that is to you. But the last one that I'll recommend is Thinking in Systems by Danella Meadows. I got this recommended by a sustainability professor I had at NYU. It's a lot about how to scale action because when you think, I mean, when I first thought about the climate crisis, I was like, oh, I was like, okay, what do I do? It's yeah. like already happening. We're going to die. But it really helps you scale systems, basically. So thinking about a food system, thinking about supply chains, it gives you like a lot of um, vocabulary to think about intervention points, tipping points, scaling that. Because for me, like scaling and scientific shit is really difficult for me to talk about. So it gives me a lang it gives people a language if you are not kind of like fluent in that like organizational hierarchy stuff. And then there's a few TED Talks and videos. Um Atmos, who has a really nice Instagram that posts a lot of those, you know, infographics, <laughs> uh, which are limited, but whatever. Uh posts a lot of infographics about food policy and kind of keeps you up to date with what Biden is doing on the climate. So they had a piece on the future of food, and it was a very imaginative piece about it. But um I think that concludes it. I mean yeah, we hope you guys don't, we don't want to leave you like nihilistic about the food system, but leaving you optimistic about how it can change and how mm-hmm. it can be better. Yeah, and how there is like work being done. Yeah. Granted, it's slow, slow work, but I mean, it's progress. And I think with any sort of activism is to make sure that you are already supporting existing organizations. Like you don't need to go out and make a regenerative agriculture thing. There definitely are people that have been doing that work before mm-hmm. you. And I think that's an area where younger people are so driven by capital that are like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to go create the next thing. It's like, no, give it to the black woman that's already been doing the shit yeah. in your backyard. You know, you don't need to go start a new sustainability thing. I'm pretty sure there's trillions of people already doing that yeah. work. And I think again, if you are like inspired and want to improve your habits, I do recommend going onto the CMOS Life account for the food and climate change part one infographics. We provided kind of like a flow chart of like how you can improve your life based on where you currently are and like your lifestyle and habits. And so if you want ideas of how to just become a more conscious person and just a better like advocate, um, definitely take a look at those. Totally. And once again, like that, I think the CMOS one, CMOS one, CMOS one, the episode 12, the first part of the infographics are really navigatable for someone that is probably a younger, probably female listener. Honestly, I looked at our demographics. It's a lot of young women. So we hope you guys enjoy those um have a happy monday these infographics will be posted later in the week about the structural inequalities but you know leave us a review in the apple podcast if you feel so inclined um us girlies be loving the support anyway 
support the meme page. Please. Uh, please. That's all we care about. I'm kidding. We care about the podcast. Yeah. We're girl bosses. Don't worry. Meme, meme post, shit posters on the side. But um, anything else you're doing today, Emma? I'm going to go to Trader Joe's to stock up on some food before the snowstorm. Yeah, snowstorm. Try to get my some steps in. Yeah. Um, and then just go in the cocoon. Yeah, cocoon. It's cocoon weather. Uh, yeah. I need to, I forgot to take my magnesium last night. I, Same. Oh, God, the girlies. I need to make a, a document of when I need yeah, to take my pills. God. Oh. oh, God. Cringe. No comment. No comment on that. Um, but thank you guys for listening. Episode 13. Have a good rest of your week. Bye. Adios.